Father God, we thank you uh, for the wonderful way you've made yourself known through through your word and especially through your son, our Lord Jesus. Uh, we thank you for your great love for us in Christ. Uh, we thank you for the riches of your word that uh, teaches us so much about who you are and about who we are before you and, and all that you've done for us in Christ. And so as we come into your word today, we pray that you would uh, just by your spirit, open the ears of our hearts to hear what it is you have to say for us. Uh, we pray that you would uh, just be with Duncan as he uh, explains um, uh, your word to us today. And we pray that um, it will meet us at the deepest core of our beings and that we will be changed uh, to be fully pleasing to you in every way for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Song of Songs, chapter 8, starting at verse 5. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved, the friends say. And the, um, the farm girl, as we've been calling her, she re- responds or talks to her farm boy, sings to him, Under the apple tree I roused you, there your mother conceived you, there she who was in labour gave you birth. Place me like a seal over your heart like a seal on your arm for love as is as strong as death its jealousy unyielding as the grave it burns like blazing fire like the very flame of the Lord many waters cannot quench love rivers cannot sweep it away if one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love it would be utterly scorned. Well, many of you uh, might know this song, but in 1974, the famous folk singer John Denver released what was to become one of his greatest hits. Uh, it was his love song dedicated to his wife, his then wife, Annie. And it was appropriately called Annie's Song. Anyone familiar with Annie's Song? Uh, it is, I think, a stunningly beautiful song. Uh, it's got this flowing melody. I've been whistling it all around, around home all week and getting some strange looks. Um, the lyrics, I think, capture something really quite deep about the experience of love. I think there are echoes of the Song of Songs in Annie's Song. Uh, he links love with the natural world around him. Uh, You might know how it goes. You fill up my senses like a night in a forest, like the mountains in springtime, like a walk in the rain, like a storm in the desert, like a sleepy blue ocean. Come fill me again. Come let me love you. Do you know the tune? Let me give my life to you. Let me drown in your laughter. Let me die in your arms. Let me lay down beside you. Let me always be with you. Come let me love you. Come love me again. That tune's going to be, if you know the song, it'll be in your head the rest of the day, I bet. Uh, it is, I think, it's, it's a beautiful song. It, it, it captures something um, deep, actually, about what we long for love to be like. Something the Song of Songs holds up for us. A kind of exclusive, permanent, mutually delighting love. It's something we long for. Uh, Tragically, though, and we reflected a little on this last week, it's something that we all too often fall short of. The the sad part of this 
song's story, of Annie's song's story, is that John and Annie themselves fell short of the love that Annie's song sang about. And within 10 years of the song, they'd gone through a public and what was reported as a fairly bitter um, divorce. But I want to tell you another story about another Annie. It's another love story. Um, Two Annies we have at the start here. Annie Pierce Kincaid. Uh, Annie Pierce Kincaid lived in the 1800s and in 1873 married a brilliant theologian called Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. Um, You love the names. You might have heard of this guy, B.B. Warfield. Uh, They were a young couple full of promise. Um, They were educated uh, uh, and uh, from well-heeled American families. Uh, They got married in 1873 and uh, they went to Europe for their honeymoon. Uh, While they were there, uh, tragedy struck. There there was this massive thunderstorm. Uh, They were out walking in the mountains or something and caught into a massive thunderstorm. And not quite sure of the details, but Annie suffered some kind of severe trauma uh, in the storm that left her disabled for the rest of her life. Uh, She suffered uh, some... uh, There was this massive thunderstorm. She, She suffered severe trauma. She became more and more incapacitated as the years went by. And Warfield, her husband... Uh, through all this time, he was, one of the, he, he was one of the leading theologians of the century. He uh, was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. He had this massive output, and you still read him today. Uh, but one of his great legacies was the impression he left on his students and that they spoke about. And he lived for another 39 years. Um, and despite all his responsibilities... Warfield was utterly devoted to her. He, uh, he never left his home, we're told, at least sort of for the latter part of that time. He never left his home for more than two hours at a time. Uh, and before Annie became too incapacitated, he could be seen slowly and tenderly walking around the campus together. Now, this guy was um, a ferocious theological lion, is kind of how he gets described. Um, prob- I, I think in a good way. He was a fierce defender of the Bible uh, in a time when that was um, uh, really debated. But when it came to Annie, he was tender and gentle and utterly devoted. I, I mean, I find it a really moving story. Um, but what's striking about it uh, is this relationship between um, B.B. and Annie missed out on so much of what we think of uh, that romantic relationships need. In our world, and we've looked at this over the last couple of weeks, in our world that's so deeply shaped by naturalism and individualism, the perfect relationship is one that makes me feel good, at least most of the time, right? Uh, One that, as the song beautifully sang, one that fills up my senses. Uh, the one that's passionate and dangerous and free of restrictions. And the Warfields had none of that. They didn't, even have, they didn't even have so many of the good features of love that are on display in the Song of Songs itself, in this beautiful depiction of, of love. They didn't even have so many of those. 
Uh, the physicality of love is a good thing, and we saw that two weeks ago. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful gift of God, and it is celebrated through the, through the song. But Annie, Annie became disabled on their honeymoon. <laughs> uh, their whole marriage was shaped by that, and yet, and, and yet, right? So so much that we think of as intrinsic to a fulfilled kind of... Uh, life in marriage and yet we know don't we when we hear that story we know that deep down we know that theirs was a truer and a richer and a better love than the world around us offers wasn't it uh, there's lots of reasons why Warfield could give himself like this I think you know, um, there's lots of things you could say it's in a time when uh, duty and uh, keeping your word was probably more valued and seen as a virtue um, uh, there's one deeper reason under it all, though, and we're just going to pause on that story now and we'll come back to it at the end. Um, it's a deeper reason, I think, is brought out in this passage and throughout the whole story of the Bible. But first, we are going to think through this passage, the short passage at the end of, um, uh, of the song in chapter 8. It's a short scene, but it's really the climax of the whole book. Um, there is, it, there's more to come after it. It's kind of an epilogue after this but here, this little scene in chapter 8 is where everything, the whole song comes together, the whole story comes together. Uh, we've seen these two characters in the song, these two lovers go through their dance of seeking each other, calling each other, longing for each other. And here in 8 verse 5, finally the wait's over and they're together. It's this true consummation of their love. It's celebrated here. Uh, but what's really interesting here is this is, if you think about this as the kind of high point of the song, um, it isn't at all explicit, right? It's not R-rated, it's not MA-rated, it's not even M-rated. <laughs> you could hardly call it PG-rated. It's a community scene where the friends of the bride look at and see this farm girl and farm boy walking towards them, it's a scene where fulfilment is found not primarily in uh, physical intimacy but in relationship. Let's look at it. Um, 8 verse 5. The friends looking on and they see these two. And they say, Who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? It is a, a community celebration, right? And we, this, we did see this a couple of weeks ago tried to bring this out in a song. It's not something that's hidden away. It's, and it's not just about these two individuals. It's not their, their marriage um, that's pictured here. It's not just about two individuals' love. It's about the founding of a new family that takes place in a community. Um, it takes place as another link in the chain of two families. And a weird thing to us, I think, um, the farm girl sings to her man... Right, and here, this is the climax of the whole song, this beautiful scene of consummation and fulfilment. <laughs> and here, right here, when the farm girl sings to her man, she brings in her mother-in-law. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Under the apple tree, it's like a symbol of love in the song. Under the apple tree, I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labor gave you birth. Right, you get this sense of this is not this. Um, it's a community celebration. It's uh, a family ordeal. 
audio sounds wrong, doesn't it? That's the, that was the wrong thing to say. A family celebration. Uh, but then she does sing directly to a man. If you read on in verse 6, she says, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. There are two seals. Notice that as you read through, there's two seals there. A seal kind of marks something. It seals something up. It binds it up. Uh, and she invites him, she calls him to put herself as a seal over his heart, a kind of deep inward binding. But also on his arm, uh, an external public binding, something like, a, I think, probably a wedding ring today. Uh, there's both this internal and this public external sealing of that's going on um, all the way through the song uh, the farm girl has um, uh, the, the, uh, has uh, we've seen her as uh, uh, as being closed up and sealed this is kind of the Im- the language that gets used about her back in uh, 4 verse 12 this isn't up on the screen but yeah you can uh, look it in your Bibles if you like 4 verse 12 the farm boy sings of her you are a garden locked up my sister my bride you are a spring enclosed, uh, a, f- a sealed fountain. Um, and if you've kind of flicked ahead to the, in, the end of this chapter, in the end of chapter 8, um, the friends talk about a little sister that they have. And they describe her in the same kind of a way. She's a wall with towers, an enclosed door, and that's right and good until the right time, until the public commitment of marriage. The wisdom of this song, as we saw last week, is not to arouse or awaken love. But there is a right time. Uh, and in the song, this scene in chapter 8 is it. But notice, um, notice it's not like what was, what was closed is now open. That's not the image you get here. It's not that what was closed is now open. There is a new closing, a new ceiling. Her locked garden opens for him and him only, And now they are sealed together. And their love needs this seal, this inward and this external binding together. They need it because love, as she goes on, they need it because love is as strong as death. It's jealousy as unyielding as the grave. You such rich images here, right? Once death gets a hold of you, you can't escape it. None of us will. That's the kind of ferocious grip that love has. It says once the grave's got you, it doesn't let you go. It's unyielding and that's the kind of strength that this love has. It's so strong and so powerful. It needs this sealing up, this binding. Um, that's, that's why the Bible is against sex outside of marriage. It's not to stop joy or pleasure. Uh, it's because it's for something so much more wonderful. It, it's because romantic love and intimacy are so powerful that if you mess with them outside of this tight bonding, this public, permanent sealing of heart and body, uh, it will only lead to pain. Um, so love's seal. Love's seal is power, this powerful reality that is sealed together in the bond of marriage. But the image shifts you notice there, the image shifts now to a fire. Um, love's fire, it burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. 
I, I read something else when I read it through. You might have picked that up, but we'll get to that later. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. The, this love, that's only, this sort of idealised love in picture here is of such intensity, such heat, that a whole, you get the picture of this huge torrent of water flowing down and it can't extinguish it. We'll come back to that verse, as I said. Um, then, uh, at the end, in verse 7, the, this new bride finishes her song um, in this part. Uh, this fulfilment of love that's pictured here between these two, sealed up in marriage, is of immeasurable worth. If one, she says, if one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. We saw a couple of weeks ago, and I think this is quite interesting, that uh, the, the song itself is either written by or dedicated to Solomon, the great King Solomon. Uh, I think it's dedicated to him, not written by him, but I won't die on that stake. Um, Solomon, uh, but Solomon, right? Solomon was renowned for his wealth, uh, and he was renowned for his romantic excess. We're told he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, um, just as an aside on that, because this is kind of pretty relevant, uh, the Bible does record polygamy. Uh, it does talk about polygamy, but it doesn't ever commend it. It doesn't ever teach it as God's good design. It was part of the broader culture at the time and the story of the Bible. In the story of the Bible, it always, it always leads to pain and suffering. And what's and particularly for Solomon, kings are explicitly told not to go there. They, they're told not to have many wives in Deuteronomy 17. You can look that up later if you like. Uh, the pattern in Genesis 2 that we looked at two weeks ago is clear and it is upheld here in the song of marriage as one man and one woman in an exclusive, lifelong covenant commitment that founds a new family. Um, but that's kind of an aside. But this, this was one area where Solomon, the great wise one, right, the wisest man ever to live, this was one area where he was a, a complete fool. Uh, he didn't listen to God. He followed the nations around him and he ended up with a thousand wives or concubines. And you can't, I think, you can't help reading this verse as a kind of a, actually a, a, a rebuke to Solomon. Um, he had all the physical intimacy he could want. He'd just click his fingers. But he never had. He never had this kind of love. His wealth was legendary, but compared to what this humble farm boy and farm girl had, it's nothing. It's to be utterly scorned. So, that's the kind of picture you get in the song of this um, fulfillment of their relationship, this consummation of their love. Uh, it's celebrated in, in community, it's sealed, it burns like fire and it's worth more than anything. Not more than anything, it's worth more than all the wealth in your house, house I should say. Uh, that's what the, the picture you get of this human relationship of love. Um, but this, this series has brought up, the, the last few weeks, has, uh, it has brought up for a whole range of responses in each of us, each in different ways. Uh, we looked last week at how for all of us, this is, this is kind of an ideal, right? It's an ideal painted 
that doesn't match our reality. For all of us, at some extent or another, we're all battered and bruised to some extent by the sin and brokenness of others. And we're all tainted and scarred by our own sin and brokenness. Um, We reflected last week on God's great wisdom that he gives here, as we've already mentioned, not to arouse or awaken love until it's in its proper place in marriage. Uh, And we heard again last week the incredible news of the gospel that we can always come to Jesus. We can always come to Jesus in repentance and faith, turning from our sin and hearing his life-giving declaration of forgiveness and new life through the Spirit. We heard all that last week, but there is more to say. And it's said, I think, in a very subtle but a very powerful way here in this part at the end of Song of Songs. We are meant to hear this song of fulfilment, this song of perfection, of the love of these two lovers. We're meant to hear it and we're... we're, it's, it's meant to stir us. It's, we're meant to see this ideal. Um, and if we're married, we're meant to work towards it. And if we're not, to wait for it. But at the same time, we're meant to see that however good this love might be, it's not ultimate. There is another, brighter, hotter love that this is just an echo of, a copy of. Uh, Perhaps maybe you picked it up when I was reading out. I read something different to what was on the screen. And if you have your Bibles there, you'll see it in a a bit of a footnote. This love burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Literally, it says, like the flame of Yah. Um, it's, It's a veiled but very deliberate reference to Yahweh. Uh, Israel's God, the Lord of Israel. And if, as I said, in your, in your church Bibles, there's a footnote that says that, or you can see it there, or you might have another translation. Um, uh, the ESV, which is, I've put up on the screen, puts it like this. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. It's the only. It's quite interesting, I think. The only mention of God in the whole book, um, but it's deliberate, and it comes right at the climax in this key passage. The flame of this kind of love is a small token of the bright flame of the love of God for His people and His world. Um, that's why throughout throughout the Old Testament. The relationship between God and his people, Israel, is pictured uh, as that of a marriage. It's why when you get to the New Testament, after the fulfillment of God's love in the person of Jesus, uh, in his life and death and resurrection, when when Paul talks about marriage, the Apostle Paul in, in Ephesians 5, he says, our marriages need to be shaped by... There's actually a real marriage. What Meredith was talking about uh, in, the kids, in the kids' talk. Our marriage is shaped by the real marriage, the real marriage between Jesus and his bride, the church. That's why husbands are to lovingly give their lives for their wives in self-sacrificial headship 
and why wives are to entrust their respect to their husbands in their freely given submission because their relationship is really a picture of the real marriage. Their love, a hint of the much deeper love of God in the gospel of Jesus. I think it's hard to overstate, actually, just how important this is, how huge this is for all of us, actually, for all of us in our own struggles in this area, um, in our own struggles in terms of relationships. Uh, There are lots of... There's lots of wisdom that can be really helpful. Tips, things you might... I remember as a teenager, someone telling me, uh, uh, and, uh, and this is particularly relevant for men, we're visual creatures, right? Someone, I remember t- someone telling me, bounce your eyes and don't look twice. Bounce your eyes... I mean, I just think that's, that's stuck with me. Uh, I think that's just a, a really helpful piece of advice for men struggling with um, uh, feelings of uh, uh, unhealthy attraction. Bounce your eyes and don't look twice, especially men. Visual creatures, it's just a bit of helpful. Uh, If you see something visually tempting to you, you know that's outside God's good intention for you. Right? It's just something to take away. Bounce your eyes and don't look twice. Okay, you know, that's just one that's just one kind of example of something that you can find a whole raft of, right? Good, wise help into in this area. But there are a whole lot of things like that, but they don't, they don't actually get to the heart of what's going on for us, really. I mean, you can follow all the rules and proverbs and still have a greedy and lustful heart. What we ultimately need is not a change of habits. We need a change of hearts. We don't need a new rule. We need a new affection. I've talked about this before, but... Um, There was an old Scottish Puritan in the 19th century called Thomas Chalmers. He wrote this incredible little book, a bit hard to read because it's ye olde English, um, but really incredible, called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He basically says, if you're battling with misplaced affections, affection is kind of an old way of saying this, uh, deep longings within you, if you're battling with misplaced affections, affections that you know are, are wrongly placed, that are against God's will, it's not enough for you just to bounce your eyes and not look twice. You know, it's not enough for you just to try and kick them out by the force of your own willpower. Because if you do, another one will just take its place. It might look a little different. Um, no, he says, and I think this is brilliant, he says, what we need is not to just by our own willpower kick out our wrong affections because we'll find another one takes its place. We need the expulsive power of a new and brighter and more wonderful affection. We need something else to capture our hearts, a brighter reality. And when it comes to romantic intimacy in marriage, this is the brighter reality, the warmer fire, the truer love. This is the affection that we need to settle in our hearts. The only thing that will really ultimately satisfy our longings. The end of the Bible story, uh, as we saw again in the kids' talk in Revelation, tells of God's coming future like this as a marriage between Jesus and his church. I'm going to read out a passage from it and just let it sink into your hearts. Let it sink into you as the certain future if you are united to Jesus by faith. Uh, If you know that that's not you, 
If you're not trusting in Jesus as your own Saviour and Lord, this is the perfect future that he offers you, this kind of complete intimacy and fulfilment. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, that's kind of a picture of the church, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Friends, seeing this as the perfection of all our longings. Our longings for intimacy is, is critical for us. It's critical for all of us, whether we're married or not. Um, Christianity has always had, always, and it's been a tragedy when the church has not lived up to this, but Christianity has always had a remarkable and honourable place for those who are single in a way that is unique and beautiful. That's so much so that Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 can lift up singleness so highly that in many ways he says uh, it's better than marriage because those who are single can give undivided attention to the gospel, to this real marriage. He says you're not not sinning if you do marry, you're free and um, if uh, if, uh, only he does say marry in the Lord, But if you know the real marriage, you're swept into in Jesus, then you'll see the real fulfilment and intimacy on offer and know that they are available, know that those who aren't married in this life are in no way, in no way, less human, less fulfilled, less valuable. There is a real, there is, and this is important to acknowledge, there is a real creational good Um, that those of us who are single do not experience. And as a church family, we need to recognise and honour that and be a real family. And if God blesses those of us who are single with, with that creational good in his own way and in his timing, receive it thankfully. But if we see with gospel eyes that good, that creational good, is overwhelmed by the ultimate good that all of Christ's people are destined for. But this is critical for married people too. It is a constant temptation to idolise our marriages, I think, to see our spouse as the one who will fulfil us, who will complete us, who will provide what we lack, everything that we lack. Our spouse is not God and they can't carry that burden And if we put it on them, the strain will be too much. Knowing this greater marriage is how we can both honour our marriages rightly. They are in God's grace one of 
they are one of the most potent signs of the gospel, the glorious gospel. When you love each other like the Song of Songs puts before us, it points to the love of our God. Our marriages have a high and holy significance, but they are not ultimate. They will be fractured and fallen, and entrusting ourselves to God and this future wedding of the Lamb is key in sustaining and helping us to repent and keep working at our own marriages, all the while not idolizing them. That's the expulsive power of this new affection. Um, I'm fairly sure that Warfield, B.B. Warfield, knew this expulsive power. And um, it was the ultimate reason he could so remarkably give himself to Annie, his wife. I want to finish by reading out a part of a sermon he gave um, at the seminary where he was a professor. He was teaching and everyone there, all the students knew his situation, right? Uh, they would have seen him possibly walking with Annie. Uh, he preached this sermon called God's Immeasurable Love. God's Immeasurable Love. Uh, his sermon was on the famous passage from John's Gospel, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Uh, he talks about God's love for the whole world, not meaning every individual will be saved, but that God's saving purpose is for a renewed creation, the whole world. He, anyway, he ended it like this. Oh, raise your eyes. Raise your eyes, I beseech you, to the far horizon. Let them rest nowhere short of the extreme limits of the divine purpose of grace and tell me what you see there. Is it not the supreme, the glorious issue of the love of God which loved not one here and there only in the world but the world in its organic completeness and gave his son not to judge the world but that the world through him should be saved? And then in his sermon, Warfield quoted from Revelation 21. And can you imagine sitting there knowing his own situation? Uh, he quoted from the end, uh, later on in 21, where we didn't read from, from verse 9. Uh, One of the seven angels said to me, that's to the Apostle John, in having this vision in Revelation, he said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, and he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And then in verse 23, the city did, does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its lights and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful 
but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Warfield finishes like this. Only those written in the Lamb's book of life, and yet all the nations. It is the vision of the saved world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have eternal life. It is the vision of the consummated purpose of the immeasurable love of God. This is the vision that is before us, friends. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks so honestly and um, lovingly. We thank you for this book of the Song of Songs. Um, Lord, we, we know that talking about these things raises issues for all of us in different ways. Uh, Father, for things that are not out of your word that I may have said, we, we pray that they will just get forgotten. But Lord, those that are from your word, please impress them on our hearts. Fill us with this vision. Fill us with this vision of the perfection of intimacy, of all our longings in the wedding supper of the Lamb. Fill us with certain hope and longing for that day when there will be no more mourning or crying or sadness or sickness or pain, when you will make everything new and we will live with you in perfect unity. Lord, we pray with the Apostle John at the end of the book of Revelation. We pray, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Amen.